Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. Today's episode is a, a bit of an outtake compared to my usual fare, but in light of recent developments in the news, I thought it was a, a worthy detour. As many of you know, I was trained as a student of 20th century Russian history and have remained close to the topic and the profession, even though I changed careers about 25 years ago. But given events in the news, I think it's really important that we discuss a book that just came out by Dina Feinberg. She is an associate professor of modern history at City University of London. The book is Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Frontlines. Dina, uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you so much for hosting me, Dan. So this book really, I think, uh, given what happened uh, in Belarus recently with a journalist, not a traditional New York Times or WAPO journalist of the United States, but a modern journalist operating in the internet close to the front lines of the news, nevertheless being pulled off an airplane very much in a, uh, in a Cold War-like uh, moment that it really brought our attention again to the sources of news about Russia, Belarus, the former Soviet Union, how that news is gathered, and the high stakes associated with, uh, with that news coverage. And your book provides just a spectacular background to how that conflict and how that exercise in journalism was carried out in the post-war period. Uh, again, the book uh, is, is Cold War Correspondence. We can debate it at another time, uh, whether we're in a new Cold War or not. But this covers the period uh, of the classical Cold War uh, of, of the correspondence, both from the former Soviet Union, Soviet Union at that time, uh, covering the West, and uh, American correspondents working in, in the Soviet Union and the challenges they face. Let's kind of just start. How did you get onto this topic uh, because although there's a little bit of a literature on this, there isn't a lot. And uh, I think it, particularly from this Soviet side, and it, it just seems like it was a, a very, uh, a, a nice big topic that, uh, that you were able to latch on to. Yeah, uh, thank you for, for these questions and for hosting me again. It started with um, a paper on uh, the history of journalism, of American journalism that I did at the beginning of graduate school. And um, I wrote the paper on the books that American correspondents who covered the Soviet Union wrote about their assignments in the USSR. And I was really struck and interested to read these books, partially because um, I think I was surprised uh, with some of the strong terms that they took, how much they use the books to think and to talk about the United States and how much they actually had comparative thinking uh, embedded in writing about the Soviet Union. And then I discovered that Soviet journalists who traveled to the United States also wrote books about America and that these books were also very interesting and full of sharp observations about the United States but also had thoughts about the journalists' own societies embedded in them. So I was very surprised to see that two such very different media systems and two such very different media cultures and kind of ideologies and societies actually relied on the same group of people, that is professional journalists, to 
tell them about the world, to tell them about this great uh, enemy overseas, and that as they did so, both sets of journalists reflected on their own societies and cultures. So this is how the project started. And, and the assumption is that uh, each of each side has a certain kind of ideological bent, or each side thinks they're telling the news very objectively. But what I think you do in, in detail in each case is the background of the journalists, their mandates, particularly from the Soviet side, made it very, you know, very difficult for the for the Soviet journalists in the U.S. They they this was a cognitive dissonance challenge. They really there those that came with a more ideological background, those that that more journalistic background. There wasn't a professional journalism. You described the the emergence of professional journalism in the Soviet Union and how it affects this. But you know it it was it was. Hard and to some extent, the the American journalists operating in in the Soviet Union also are have baggage. Bring their own baggage. Everyone's bringing their own baggage. Maybe it's the state's baggage. Maybe it's their personal baggage. But there's there's baggage everywhere. More so than most people who assume that the um, a journalist is just telling the tale the way it is. And boy, was that not the case really on either side. Yes, and I think this was one of the most surprising discoveries, I guess, uh, in looking at both sides is how much personal baggage and how much their personal backgrounds and their previous experiences have actually influenced their reporting and the things that they were attracted to and became interested in when they reported on the rival superpower and um, really how much the personality of the journalist dictates what is in the news, what then becomes news. And I think this is something that I did not think about before working on this project, but to what extent the news that we are consuming as, you know, information and um, and we can talk separately what was considered trustworthy or objective on both sides, but at the very core of this and something that has impact for our days is that the news that we are reading are produced by people. And these people are not erased from the news. On the contrary, these people are the ones who are reporting what they're seeing, what they're hearing. They are constructing news as stories that we then consume. And I think remembering that news are human-produced, that they are produced, that they are essentially stories told by people and then edited by other people and presented to us to consume and interact with is something really important that we often forget when we think about the press. And then then there are the kind of macro pressures, the macro context. It's particularly now when I look back on all the the books that I collected by journalists who went to the Soviet Union, uh, that baggage is reflected in one particular thing that, that is to some extent, some of the journalists, particularly when they're sort of safely back home and writing their reminiscences, you know, viewed themselves as an agent of change. Uh, and it was, you know, re- reporting or shedding light on the Soviet Union is to a la some of uh, the Kustin material that, that uh, you and I should discuss. It's, it's to ultimately say, well, you know, this is the way, say, Russia is or the United States is, but here's the optimism that it will move in the right direction. Now, for the Soviet authors, moving in the right direction was was one thing, and then for the 
American correspondence in, in, in Moscow moving in the right direction was, was a different thing. But that ideological overhang was, was present in, uh, in the ed relationship with the editors. We see uh, your, your uh, account really has lots of interesting episodes where the journalist sends back to their home country and a certain account, and then the editors back in the, the, the newspaper headquarters struggle with it to try to figure out where, where does this fit in the existing American narrative about the Soviet Union or the existing Soviet narrative about the United States. And so it was, it was personal and ideological, but very, you know, a, a not, a straight, not a straight line of here's what happened and here's what it means. Exactly. And they were, you know, ideology is one of the things that each person brings into, that each link in this uh, chain process of newsmaking brings to this process. So ideology obviously plays a big role. So are the different media cultures, the sorts of expectations or assumptions about expectations from readers, particular relationships with the foreign policy establishment, which again was a new re revelation to me to an extent, especially in the American case. And again, how all these different things, how many people are actually participating in producing the news, both you know in front and behind the scenes. And this was a very interesting discovery. So let, let's get to some of the, the details because they're really fascinating. The, this Soviet Union, students of the Soviet Union realized that, you know, they, they had to make up a lot of stuff pretty quickly. One of the things they had to make up was an international journalist corps. They didn't really have one. They didn't inherit one. And they uh, try after World War II to some goodwill tours with high profile people, but they still don't have an international journalist corps. They often rely on local sympathetic people around the world to feed information back to the Soviet Union, but they had to create, uh, almost from whole cloth, uh, the concept of a newspaper man. Uh, and again, you can question the ideological framework of that, but at least for foreign journalism, they, they didn't have it. They had to create that. Instead, they just sent some people abroad with very limited resources and hoped for the best. That didn't work out really well. Do you want to you know, kind of describe some of the challenges they faced in the early decades after the war? Yeah, so initially, and it's really important because uh, whereas Soviet journalism has uh, a very clear ideological framework and design to it, like it works in a particular way and it's kind of outlined in uh, the overall kind of Soviet conception of socialism, international reporting was a pretty strange thing and it, there was not too much of it in the Soviet Union. And so they created this profession of a foreign correspondent almost from scratch in response to a perceived American threat. So they're looking and thinking, oh, American media has all these amazing foreign correspondents. This is a propaganda disadvantage, so we need to match up. And so they start... We need Soviet Restin. So uh, that's a great line, a great story. Do you want to elaborate on, on Scotty Restin? So Scotty Restin was uh, a legendary New York Times uh, editor. And during World War II, he had, it to, had the Office of War Information of the United States. And he did some really excellent work there. And then after the end of the war, he resumed his post at the Times. And so there is a legend, and I don't know, like I heard it from many different places, that Stalin kind of in 45 or 46 says we need Soviet restants. And what he means is that it's not that we need like, uh, you know, editors of uh, serious newspapers. We need people like restants, so journalists who are propagandists, somebody 
who, like Reston, had done very effective work heading U.S. US wartime propaganda. And so, again, this idea that they need somebody like this who's going to be a journalist uh, and propagandist at the same time, somebody who can report well, but in so doing, clearly advance national interests on the international arena. And this kind of idea is really what inspires them to start establishing a press, an international press corps of their own. Now, this ideal actually kind of runs into the wall of what Soviet system of information is like at the time. And the Soviet system of information is pretty inefficient. It's uh, very bureaucratic. It has a very particular laconic and dry writing style that just has very little room for individual initiative, beautifully told stories about socialism and capitalism, and um, and kind of very little room for journalists to exercise this amazing storytelling. And so you have all these people who are who do travel to the United States, and even when they are trying to, you know, go poetic and write these beautiful stories about socialism and capitalism, they cannot. On the one hand, they really don't know America. Uh, and so they're trying to write about America through these slogans and kind of um, metaphors and epithets that even their bosses in Moscow find kind of distasteful. Uh, but on the other hand, when they do try to do something interesting, this really runs into kind of the wrath of bureaucrats and officials, and every item is vetted by three different people. Of course, everybody, each of these three people insists on inserting corrections, and so this becomes a very, very cumbersome process that really kind of undermines the whole mission or this whole idea of creating these brilliant international correspondents that going to promote socialist cause abroad. And there was this issue as well that, to some extent, uh, TASS and, and uh, before Pravda or Zvestia had foreign correspondence, TASS was simply almost a news clipping service. It was almost a one-way one exercise to provide information, not so much about the United States or the West to Soviet readers, but uh, accounts of the Soviet Union in the Western press. And it's being fed all the way up to the Politburo uh, in terms of these clippings. And that's not the same thing as a journalism. That's a clipping service, which, uh, you know, that's what they started with. It wasn't much to start with. Yeah. And so that has all these like different functions. So they are supposed to write um, articles. But again, this is very in institutionally circumscribed and uh, very limited. And they are gathering, they also are gathering these reports. What is interesting is when these reports, and, you know, I've seen them. So when they, every item that was published in the USSR gets clipped and put into a binder and then it arrives to Moscow. And so when you, if you are a Soviet who had never seen an American newspaper or a magazine, and if you look at these reports, you get this impression that um, American newspapers has, do nothing else but talk about the Soviet Union because these items were completely kind of uh, taken out of context. So you didn't see the whole newspaper around them. So you're just looking at a binder of American news obsessed with the Soviet Union. And of course, if you are a Soviet official reading these binders, you get really worried about that. And you start thinking, oh, there is a propaganda campaign against the Soviet Union going on. And so that becomes this kind of um, kind of self-perpetuating machine. So where Soviets feel that they really have to respond with propaganda of their own. And then from the American side, there is a professional journalistic cadre. They, they often are not Russian specialists. 
Uh, they are journalists who then get seconded over to the Soviet Union after World War II. They quickly take a class, if they can, in, in, in Russian language, particularly in the uh, later period. But they're, they're thrown into Russia. They're professional journalists first, and then they're thrown into Russia. And Russia doesn't look a lot like New York City or Washington, D.C. in terms of the operations of how journalists, they're not used to how difficult it is to really operate there. And, you know, it's, it's uh, quite a, kind of a shocking uh, exercise for them as well. I think the difficulties are massively frustrating, especially in this early period, because the limitations were really pretty severe and they were reciprocal, right? So whatever the limitations are on uh, U.S. correspondence in the Soviet Union, parallel limitations exist on Soviet correspondence in the United States. Still, kind of the lot of American reporters in the USSR was much more harder, I guess, because of what the different systems are like. So they cannot travel much and they need to apply for travel permits way in advance and they need to file requests to do any stories. These requests are often denied, not answered or answered, you know, months after this is uh, relevant. There is a lot of suspicion towards American journalists, especially in the 1940s. And they become this really small and embattled community of foreigners in uh, Moscow and that constantly feel, uh, to quote uh, Harrison Salisbury from the New York Times, like under siege behind enemy lines. And this is how I felt. Uh, this is also the feeling that you get from the documents of the time, kind of these small group of people constantly alerted and constantly um, embattled. And to add to that, when back at home, their dispatchers are second guest always, and uh, their editors and the officials are wondering, have they gone soft on communism? Are they trying to kind of curry favor with the Soviets? Are they becoming less patriotic than we need them to be? And so kind of on the one hand, they constantly have to you know, like find their way throughout the Soviet system of censorship and surveillance and hardship. And on the other hand, constantly affirm their loyalties back to their editors uh, at home and to their readers as well. And it, it, the, what was an interesting distinction that emerged was the dispatches by the co the correspondents from the Western newspapers uh, during the kind of the whole of the height of the Cold War were censored at the point of dispatch. That is, they were read by before they could be submitted out of the country. They were read by local Soviet censors, and what uh, emerged, and so they're kind of sanitized, which also raised questions uh, uh, in the eyes of the the editors back in in New York or Washington. What uh, emerges an interesting contrast is the dispatches at the time, and then when the journalists cycled out of uh, the Soviet Union back to the United States, they would often write a book about it, and they obviously had much more leeway to say how they, they thought it. But that distinction between what they wrote at the time and the book, the follow-up book, I think is something that a lot of readers wouldn't, wouldn't normally think about. And it occurred, it turns out, even on the, the Soviet side, that some of the, in the later Soviet period, the journalists... Soviet journalists returning to the Soviet Union then summarized their accounts in book form that made for very interesting and sometimes different reading than the, the actual dispatches. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fascinating that, again, that they both produce books. And here I, I agree, Americans are the ones who lead the way, really, because it starts much earlier in the United States in response to conditions of uh, censorship. But then it also evolves. So once uh, there's no more censorship, they're still doing this partially because uh, because they want to use the book to reflect 
on their experiences in greater depth, partially because the book by that time becomes something that is like a staple of Moscow assignment, right? It's kind of expected from an American correspondent who goes to the Soviet Union and partially also to compete with the electronic media uh, and stuff like television and films and documentaries, newspapers do not allow space for much in-depth reflection and retrospection, whereas uh, a book actually allow them to reflect on their experiences in more broadly and in greater depth and to tell stories about not just summits and kind of political developments, but what the Russians are like as people. Or the yeah, for me, speaking the Russians, for me, the book, given my time and age and my tr- career trajectory was Hedrick Smith, the Russians, uh, followed by Robert Kaiser, and much, much later, uh, the New Yorker, I'm sorry, the New Yorker editor. David Remnick. David Remnick. So I, I was reading the dispatches in the New York Times, uh, but I, I also was reading their follow-up accounts. Uh, as uh, and, and for me, it was easier to read the follow-up accounts than it was to, to you know, go back and read each of their dispatches. So uh, and in that perspective, again, they, they would have been different. And the same thing, again, the, in the, uh, you discovered books that I did not know existed in the late Soviet and uh, early post-Soviet period, the account of a number of journalists. You mentioned one of them just passed away at an advanced age uh, just a few days ago on your, your Twitter feed. Uh, Mel Struya uh, passed away, but he did it. He both uh, served as a journalist in the United States and then wrote up his account when he returned. What Any, any particular, you, I uh, think you said you interviewed him uh, not uh, several years ago? So Melor Sarua is an, a fascinating person, and I did get a chance to interview him 10 years ago, um, and he passed away yesterday. It was He was 93. He is a fascinating story. So his father was a Georgian revolutionary who fought in the Civil War alongside Stalin and a very high-ranking official in Soviet Georgia. Uh, and he was such a dedicated revolutionary that he named his son Melor, which is the acronym of the words Marx, Engels, Lenin, and October Revolution. And so Melor uh, gets into Soviet Union's uh, most prestigious university, which is the Moscow State Institute for International Relations, which trains um, Soviet cutters for work overseas. And he was about to become, you know, a career diplomat or intelligent, uh, for intelligence person. But then uh, in 46, his father was accused of nostalgia for Trotskyism and relieved of all his uh, posts in the party. And so Melor was effectively about to become out of job, without a job upon graduation. So Anastas Mikoyan, another minister and uh, kind of a close associate of Stalin, actually intervenes on his behalf and gets him a job at Izvestia, which is the Soviet, the Soviet daily owned by the government. And so Melor gets into international department of Izvestia and starts kind of working on these articles on international themes. Uh, later, after Stalin's death, the whole... Soviet journalistic scene becomes much more adventurous and much more liberated. And so he is at a relatively young age appointed as a foreign correspondent first in London and then in the United States. And he spent years in America reporting from every, you know, dramatic thing that happened. So he was right there uh, during um, the DNC um, demonstrations in Chicago in 68. He was at Kent State. He was... uh, in Washington when the whole Watergate thing was unfolding. And uh, he wrote a 
not just one book, he wrote actually many books about his experiences. In fact, one of his books is called Ferment and it's really nicely designed. It's designed like, um, you know, kind of 60s, like hippies, like colors and shapes. Uh, it's like very American design, very American inspired cover for this book where he the, he dedicated this entire book just to the concept of um, American youthful rebellion against authority. So he wrote uh, numerous books throughout his lifetime, uh, numerous articles, uh, super biting sense of humor, really interesting and critical observations about the United States. And he continued to write after 91 and up until kind of his death, he was still commenting on uh, U.S. affairs and kind of offering commentary on what's going on in the United States. I interviewed him and I learned a lot from him. Um, also, I learned many things that kind of challenged my expectations and my assumptions about what it was like to be a Soviet correspondent and what they could and could not do or what kinds of things they could get away with uh, despite all the you know restrictions that were in place and it was a kind of a feel very privileged that I got to meet him and to hear his stories firsthand so one of one of the things that emerges in the accounts uh, of the, um, the the different stages of the accounts that there's a, a brief period of detente in 1955. There is uh, hopes associated with uh, Khrushchev. There are periods with uh, you know expectations of liberalization from the Western journalist core, and to some extent, uh, changes in the controls uh, over the journalists on both sides as relations uh, temporarily improve before returning to their normal terrible, <laughs> as has been the case for, for a long time. Uh, and that, that zigging and zagging, uh, I, I thought was very interesting that there are periods where uh, it is not as kind of dark and difficult as it was uh, a few years before, but then it gets dark and difficult again, almost invariably. But there was a pattern to that, and it follows, broadly speaking, the pattern of relationships between the, the Soviet Union and the United States in that time. Yeah, I'm asked a lot. I'm being asked a lot about like the periodization and how I divided the book into these various um, chunks of time. I think one of the interesting things is that international reporting changes pretty consistently in tandem with changes in international relations. Uh, and these changes are also connected to who governs the Soviet Union, right? So when Stalin dies, this is a very clear and mark, and mark kind of big change in Soviet uh, domestic scene, in Soviet uh, foreign policy. And this, of course, affects American correspondents in the USSR almost overnight. Um, Nikita Khrushchev had a very erratic personality, but also kind of his tenure was marked by this broad desire to engage the West. And that translates into international reporting, into the kinds of things that, for example, American correspondents can do in the Soviet Union, the kinds of stories that they can write, the kind of access they can get. Um, it also affects what kind of news stories Soviet correspondents are encouraged to provide or are allowed to provide, you know, at, at this particular time. And so this is, a, again, 
how foreign policy and whoever is in power changes reporting. And the changes that Soviet general secretaries brought into international reporting are bigger, I guess, than the various kind of uh, success, uh, successive uh, U.S. administrations. So this is what uh, drove change, except in 68, when it is the change actually derives from the developments within each country. In the United States, you have this kind of uh, rupture of counterculture and civil rights movement and anti-war movement. And this really surprises Soviet correspondents uh, and prompts them to look at this uh, with great detail and with much attention. Um, this also has implications for American journalism more broadly, and then consequentially how American correspondents report from the Soviet Union at the same time. Um, in the Soviet Union, we see the rise of the dissident movement and kind of the movement really explodes and gains public attention in 68. So something that American journalists are very interested in and very much attracted to. And so then, you know, towards the end of uh, the 70s and kind of early 80s with Andropov and Reagan in office, uh, the, the rhetoric between the Soviets and Americans is really, really hostile. And so reporting becomes this kind of... Uh, battled outlet that is much dominated also by these headlines and by these uh, very uh, dark developments in international relations. And again, 85, Gorbachev, this outburst of uh, excitement and mutual discovery and, uh, and excitement about the end of the Cold War. So that again affects journalism. So let's let's take it up to the present because many of these themes, this is why I enjoy being a historian, many of these themes, I'm sorry to say, are... Uh, uh, evergreen, unfortunately, and are relevant uh, to this very day. The contours of journalism in the internet age and in the cable news age are different than they were in the print newspaper age. Uh, but some of the issues uh, remain the same. And we have a uh, contested relationship between uh, Russia, the, the superpower period, the Cold War period, power Cold War powers period is kind of over. It's different, again, different con power relationships. But between these two countries, there's uh, a fair degree of continuity. Uh, Western media is not trusted, and uh, the media coming out of Russia is not trusted in the United States. And then we have this dramatic tarmac episode uh, in Minsk, which has all the drama of, of a black and white Cold War movie. When you saw that unfolding, and uh, more generally for the last couple of years, not just in Belarus, but in Russia, you saw the labeling of most independent media as inogenti, as, as foreign agents, not all of it, but much of it. Uh, I just got, saw a Twitter feed today of another Russian newspaper. They said they're going to shut down as of June 12th, a business newspaper, because they were uh, labeled an inogenti, even though it's, it's basically local Russian business news, and they have no way of... Uh, operating after the 12th of June. They said they decided to shut it down. What, what have, you know, as you saw these events transpiring, what, what, what was going through your head and, and how would you present what's occurring to the media in Russia and or the media in the United States? Because again, over the past four or five years in the United States, the media has become, not so much in regard to Russia, but has become a uh, contested field as well. So it, it just seems like you've, your, your book was written for uh, helping people understand the nature of media uh, right here, right now. So, so what's the answer? <laughs> uh, Forty-two. Uh, yeah, there you go. Very good. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. People, look it up. 
Uh, yeah, the answer to the questions of life, universe, and everything is 42. Uh, so one thing that I'm really interested in, uh, that I think it's really worth mentioning in the um, Belarus event, and more broadly with a crackdown on the native media in Russia, is that unlike the Cold War, we have native voices, right? And so the, the, the media system is fundamentally different because there is a polyphony of native voices still, and these voices can get out. So to tell, um, to present a different perspective to the government, you no longer need to have a press conference in your apartment and to put somebody at the door to make sure that the KGB doesn't come and bust you. You can just go on Twitter. Uh, you can go on a Telegram channel. And so it, fundamentally, the system of getting information out of uh, you know uh, Russia, Belarus, uh, you name it, is, is absolutely different. And you have these uh, native voices who are committed to getting information out, who are, many of them are working, uh, have very high standards of uh, reporting, very high standards of work with information. And this is a big game changer. And... Um, However, the government's cracked down on these voices and what the, the arrest in Minsk was absolutely brutal and everything that happens with independent Russian outlets is uh, terrible and heartbreaking. But this, you know, this had been going for, for some years now. This is not a, a very recent development. So Russian journalists were assassinated throughout the 90s and 2000s for reporting certain things. Media outlets were, you know, shut down or threatened throughout the 2000s. So this is this is very much with um, kind of Putin's overall approach of using kind of quasi legal methods to silence down media. But an effort to silence down media um, is older than you know the past uh, four years and the past five years, and nevertheless it had strived and th these voices managed to get out in one way or the other. And I think this kind of, the, the technology, the ideology, the means to, the means to control flow of information are, are completely different than they were in the Cold War. And this is something that's worth remembering. More profoundly, having worked on this project for many years, I realized that both in Russia and in the United States, information became very closely linked to national identity. And information coming from abroad had been conceptualized as a threat throughout the Cold War. And so the Cold War gave us this legacy where on the one hand, foreign information is uh, considered suspicious. Information that is coming from foreign powers, that is produced by a foreign power, especially, you know, kind of vis-a-vis -vis the other, right? So the Russians would suspect American information. Americans would suspect Russian information. Both sides would consider the other's information as threatening to their very national interests and to who they are. This is something that developed throughout the Cold War and is one of these big Cold War legacies. And so that idea that information is a threat really helps to explain a lot with how each side 
looks at the other, with, with how each side evaluates its own media vis-a-vis the other, with, with, with how they evaluate the, rival, kind of the other side's media and the other side's reporting. And this is something that is, again, remained with us from um, the Cold War era. That said, um, the fact that there was a, you know, kind of two giant nuclear superpowers uh, confronting each other in global arena did give some kind of decorum to reporting that is no longer with us. So you could... Decoring, decorum meaning gravity and rules of the road. Uh, decorum meaning rules of writing and talking about things and conduct, right? And so you could mm. not, again, something that Melors Thoreau told me in an interview, you could not uh, directly criticize U.S. president or call him names. So mm. you had to call, talk about like the forces of reaction or, you know, some kind of other like abstract evil um, entity, but you could not kind of call people directly or bad mouths about, you know, uh, members of cabinet, uh, the president or somebody very important. And it kind of worked the other way around as well. And so Soviets, for instance, will get really offended if an American journalist would say something, you know, personal about a Soviet leader or a minister. That would be something that Soviets would be really kind of irked about. And so there were particular rules of uh, talking about each country and talking about its people uh, that kind of no longer apply. And so we sometimes see not only very preposterous reporting, kind of, you know, with on both sides, with zero evidence, with kind of zero basis, but also pretty offensive reporting that crosses these, um, you know, boundaries of politeness and I don't know civility. Yeah, and and this and and when that get, then gets you know uh, kind of carried to the other side, then it also like, it further exacerbates this conflict and hurt and offense and that sense that the other side is associated with lies, disinformation, and uh, means us harm. Well, I, I think your book really uh, does set the stage and helps individuals, whether they're interested in the history of the relationship or just looking at at Russia at the present time, understand uh, some of the media commentary. Uh, the book is Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines by uh, Dina uh, Feinberg. Dina, thank you so much uh, for being uh, a guest. It's been very, very interesting, and we will stay tuned uh, and see how things continue to play out. There is an upcoming meeting between the leaders of the two countries. We'll have an opportunity to see how the media on both sides presents that, uh, that meeting. Thank you. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Dan.